What's going on? Welcome back. This is Founders Talk. I'm Adam Stankoviak. On this show, I share one-on-one conversations I have with founders, CEOs, and makers about their journey, their lessons learned, and what it takes to build and run their business. Today, I'm joined by Christine Yen, co-founder and CEO of Honeycomb. Christine and I recorded this show late last year, just after their Series C funding round. We talk about the superpower of observability, how she and Charity Majors got to a place to found Honeycomb, the state of their platform today, what exactly observability is, and the goals they have for the future of Honeycomb. A massive thanks to our friends and partners at Fastly. This show was fast to download because Fastly has our back, literally our CDN back. Everything we do, everything we ship, all of our MP3s, all of our web assets, everything is backed by the ever awesome CDN Fastly has. Check them out at Fastly.com. What's going on, friends? This episode is brought to you by WorkOS. WorkOS is a platform that gives developers a set of building blocks for quickly adding enterprise-ready features to their applications, add single sign-on with Okta, Azure, and more, sync users from any skim directory, HRIS integration with Bamboo HR, Rippling, and more, audit trails, free Google and Microsoft OAuth, free Magic Link sign-in, WorkOS is designed for developers and offers a single elegant interface. It abstracts dozens of enterprise integrations. This means you're up and running 10 times faster so you can focus on building unique features for users instead of debugging legacy protocols and fragmented IT systems. You get RESTful endpoints, JSON responses, normalized objects, real-time webhooks, a developer dashboard, framework native SDKs, And even if your team is not focused on enterprise right now, you can still leverage WorkOS so you're not turning enterprise away. Learn more and get started at WorkOS.com. They have a single pay-as-you-grow pricing that scales with your usage and your needs. No credit card required. Again, WorkOS.com. They also have an awesome podcast called Crossing the Enterprise Chasm, and that is hosted by Michael Greenwich, the founder of WorkOS. Check it out at WorkOS.com slash podcast. Christine, welcome to Founders Talk. I've been very excited to talk with you, probably more than I should be, honestly. <laughs> I've been a fan of yours since you came on the Change Log a couple years ago. You had that talk at Strange Loop, observability superpowers, and all that good stuff. And I've just been such a fan of you personally and the company you run with with Charity and the rest of the team, also called Bees, which I think is a super cool name for <laughs> the cast that makes up your company. But welcome to Founders Talk. Thanks for coming. Thanks for saying that. And thank you for having me. I am likewise a fan of yours. And at the risk of listeners being grossed out by the by the mutual love happening here, I am really excited to be a part of this podcast. Yeah, we can't start the show without mentioning this large duffel bag you just got. So $50 million in, in Series C, what I think is uniquely interesting was that all the existing investors from your Series B round joined this round too, which I think is telling about the direction of your company. But let's open up there. Let's talk about, I guess, just the journey to a Series C. What did it take to get here? Oh, when Charity announced, or Charity's Twitter thread on the Series C yesterday, Wednesday, it was was full of sort of a little bit of doom and gloom, right? It was like, oh, we have staved off our 
obliteration for another period of time. And unless we try really hard, we probably won't fail at this point. <laughs> and I was talking to one of our, our, our director of customer engineering, and he was like, oh, you know, that, that felt like kind of a morbid joke because I can't remember when Honeycomb was ever like that. And I looked at him and I was like, ah, oh, you sweet summer child. <laughs> We've gone through some dark times. Mm-hmm. The journey to this point is one of fraught and full of late nights and gray hairs. And I think that it is also, you know, a journey that cliche as it sounds through which we've learned a lot and wouldn't trade for anything. I think a defining characteristic of Charity and I, our personalities is that we are two of the most stubborn individuals you will meet. And breaking into this space, especially in late 2015, early 2016, there were so many people who were ready to be like, why are you even doing this? Datadog exists. The space is done. There's nothing new that can be done in this problem of understanding your software systems. And we were just like, no, you're wrong. You know, people telling us we were too early, too late, everything in between. And it really feels like an artificial form of validation, but validation nonetheless, to have crossed this milestone, right? When I think of being at this stage, I don't think of receiving the large duffel bag of money, although that is also nice. And I am glad our investors are backing us. I think about how much it meant to see customers replying to our tweets on Wednesday, expressing, you know, gladness that we are, we are who we are. I think about the many people who are like, your content taught me about observability. Mm-hmm. Like, that is the meaningful change we want to see in the world. Funding announcement is just a, an artifact of that. Yeah, definitely true. A, a funding announcement is a necessary piece to this time frame, right? You, you can't get a Series C and then not announce it and share all the things around it and have the charity tweet where it might be doom or gloom. But I think, you know, that <laughs> you'd mentioned the sweet summer child in terms of, uh, I forget who the, who the person was particularly, but just this aspect of being removed. When you're a founder or a CEO or a CTO or in leadership of a, you were in the early stage and now Series C crossed the line. Now you're in a high growth stage or in, at least in a growth stage, hopefully high growth soon to come, I think we'll tell, but I think that's very possible. But there's this um, stage of removal. And it's not like it's bad or good. It's just this removal, in fact, that you and Charity in particular get to see parts of the business that no one else gets to see that you can't quite share, not because you are not transparent or not real, but because it's just something they shouldn't have to worry about, right? Like you'd mentioned the late nights and the gray hairs and the different things that come along with just the trials and tribulations of getting to here. And I think that's a unique experience, a unique life experience as a founder. And one thing I love about this show is like talking about those details. So wherever you want to take us, share more of those details, like that removal, that the journey only you and Charity can know, or only someone in your positions and other startups might be able to know. Yeah. The moment that this immediately brought to mind is Charity and I met working together at a startup in 2019. We continued to work together through that company getting acquired in 2013 and then working together at the acquired company or acquiring company for a couple years after that. And we learned a lot about how we as employees wanted to be the part that we wanted to play in that company's success, how we wanted to feel about the leadership and you know the team composition and how it's getting built. And when we started off 
yes, we wanted to bring this cool product vision in, into real life. Yes, we knew we you know wanted to build a strong, sustainable business in order to hang on to that integrity of vision. Because you know, staying independent is the only way that you get to really execute on what you want to build. There was always a third piece of we really want to build a company people are proud of being a part of. All those three things are tied together. You can't separate them out. And a piece of that has always been trying to figure out how to be as transparent as leaders, as we would have wanted our leaders to be as an employee, without necessarily bringing people along the entire roller coaster with yeah. us. Because it's scary. It's scary. So when I think about like those dark times, we had to strike this balance of being able to be real with the company, right? Hey, you know, this is our zero cash date. This is what we're up against. This is what um, you know, a company our stage, quote unquote, should be displaying. And this is what we can say instead. You know, this is what we can show instead. Being real about all of that and bringing them into kind of a world where they're aware of what is really around us and what our, you know, how it's not just sunshine and roses all the time without jerking folks around. And that has been something that has been really interesting to navigate. You know, this feeling of, we got you. These are the choppy waters, but this is why our current heading is right. Our current trajectory is right. I've been watching a lot of Vikings, so there's going to be a lot of nautical references here. Okay. <laughs> nautical references abound. <laughs> yeah. And this is why, you know, there will be land on the other side of this journey. We'll be okay. <laughs> gotcha. Yeah. So... It's one thing to say you want to build a form of company that people are proud to be a part of, but what are some of the ways that you, like, aside from that one point there where you have transparency and security without full disclosure for obvious reasons, like, what are some other ways you achieve that? Like, is it vacation days? Is it paternity and maternity leave? Like, is it benefits? You know, is it culture? What is culture? Like, how do you particularly execute that between you and charity? Like, how'd you do it? There were a couple things that, and I, I won't say how did we do it because it is an ongoing thing that keeps evolving as what works for five people doesn't work for 50 and eventually 500. There were two things that jumped to mind immediately from the early days. The first two full-time employees we brought on after myself and charity were new dads. One had, I think like a five month old, one had like a one and a half year old. And at the time, Charity and I, our working hours were like... Always. Yeah, 10.30 a.m. until like 4 a.m. It was like not, you know, not sustainable, <laughs> not good. But new dads are not going to work that. We had no interest in asking that. And so having them be the first two people who are not us really helped us establish from the beginning, look, we're not here to keep your butts in the seats. We don't want to create a culture where people hang out at the office after work and like you know, go out to drink together. Like, that's not who we are. That's not how we want you to put your lives into your work. We want you to love what you do and then get to go home. Yeah. In some cases, it was go home and, and go home at four o'clock, sign back on at some point, do what you need to do. But it's very, we trust you. You're an adult. We trust you to be an adult and, and figure it out for yourself how to manage your time. The second thing is, as I sort of alluded to, the company that Charity and I met at, Parse, built something that people loved but struggled to build that supporting business behind it. So from day one, Charity and I came into this being like, okay, it's not enough to build something people love. It's got to be a real problem that people are willing to pay real money for to support continued development and continued growing of that customer. For every engineer, for 
a long time. We, we may still do this. I don't know. I don't, I don't interview engineers anymore, but every engineer that we interviewed, we, we would sit them down and, and make sure they understood both of these sides are important to building a business. We are not just here for the cool tech. We are here to make something really valuable and solve hard, hard problems and get money in exchange for that. And A, I'm really proud of the, the, the early team that we built and concretely really proud of this moment. I remember like a year and a half or two years in when our, you know, our first salesperson would do these deal reviews, which was at the time essentially running through a spreadsheet of just the conversations that were in flight. And it was the salesperson invited the whole company of like 12 people of which everyone was optional, Yeah, but everyone showed up because everyone cared about, oh, you know, this customer, I, or this prospect, this is what they're, they want to use us for. And this, they're going to run into this problem. And it was like full engagement in the commercial side of the tech. And I, I love that. And that's, I think, being very real about this is what is important to the company. This is what we hope that you will care about as a person or as a, you know, prospective employee. And if it's not a fit for you, then let's be clear about that up front so you can self-select out. I think that has been, um, those are two things that established who we are and how we want to engage with the market from the very early days. Yeah. I like the moment you mentioned where someone was hyping you and Charity up to his early days. And they said that this could be a billion dollar company. Give me some retrospect on that. Cause like, I think now you're closer than ever to being a billion dollar company. If not already, I don't know what your valuation actually is. I know you're, your raise was $50 million, tends to be some multiple of that. So I would say you're near a billion dollar valuation. So tell me, are you a unicorn? Take me back to those days. Take me back to that day when it was very, <laughs> you laughed at the moment, but now it's very real. It's, it's a, this is like right around the corner for you if you keep going the right direction. Yeah. I've been thinking a lot about that moment uh, in the last year or so as it has firmly slid from the, oh, wasn't that funny when you know someone said that? in 2016 to, I can see the path to this point. It is no longer hypothetical. It yeah. is real. When Charity and I started off, despite these words about building a business and, and really as two engineers, right? We didn't really have an idea of the building blocks and the kind of various phases of building a go-to-market engine that would actually get us to that point. We were just like, look, we know this is a real problem. We know smart people Many of our smart friends have struggled to solve this problem with the current tools that they have. And we're just going to, again, stubborn, like we're just going to charge ahead and we're going to do this thing and, and assume that it will all come together. I still remember in the early days, Charity would go into investor meetings and be like, oh yeah, you know, this might still fail, but like we figure if it fails, we'll open source this. And you could like watch investor faces just a change closing slowly over time and we were like okay we can't yeah. we can't say that we think that yes this is a real commercial concern which we did believe we just yeah. natural engineer tendencies of, of being cynical about what was in front of us i won't speak to the specific valuations because all of that is market and perception and who knows the the real alchemy behind how valuations are produced but i can say i ground everything in real customers and real stories and real people and real outages they were able to either resolve or prevent because of their use of honeycomb. And with that, each time there's a new story I get to add to my mental cache of this is how we really helped these people. Yeah. That feeling attached to that billion dollar valuation like that, 
is reinforced every day. Well, I think the reason why I think the perceived market places a perceived value on the status is is like one of celebration and then then two of arrival of some sort or, or possibility, right? You had said in the announcement that observability of the future is now and that the the market is white hot. It's been an incredible ride this year alone. And then you talk about the the competition, you know, in regards to the generous free cheer that you'll probably talk about here soon enough with me. But, you know, these different things that happen, there's definitely a high competition space. You got told that back in the day, basically with your you're not going to do it phase, which is Datadog exists. Stop. But that's not true. You didn't stop. You kept going. And then you've got Grafana and you've got InfluxDB, which isn't quite the same, but it can do observability, but it doesn't only do observability. There's a lot of even error tracking startups that are pivoting or just changing their language. You all coined the term almost six years ago, if not more now, the term observability. I'm curious how many times in your life you've said observability. And if you're tired of saying it. So many. (laughs) But, you know, speak to not so much the valuation, but the space, the action in the space. How how cutthroat is it? Is it cutthroat? What's the space like now? What can people listening to the show take away from understanding about the monitoring slash observability space and the value bring to that market? Well, I'm going to tell a concrete story and then talk about the, you know, going forward. So Charity spent the first several years just hitting every trade show, every conference circuit, every opportunity she could get to speak about how observability was not just a new name for monitoring, but a totally different way of thinking about production and, and interacting with that data. And there was so much skepticism and so much like, ah, buzzwords. But I still remember Monitorama is a kind of industry conference focused on monitoring and observability. And in 2017, Charity gave a talk titled Monitoring is Dead, Long Live Observability. And the tagline of the conference that year was a conference for monitoring practitioners, I believe. In 2017, she was the only talk that had the word observability in the title. In 2018, I think there were six talks with observability in the title. Tagline was the same. In 2019, there were like seven or eight talks with observability in the title, and the conference had officially changed their tagline to for monitoring and observability practitioners. Nice. And I just had this moment of like, oh, that conference is still monitorama because I think it rolls off your tongue better. But that was a moment when I was like, oh, holy cow, things were actually turning around. Coming into this space with a ton of incumbents, it has been interesting, to say the least, to see folks who had you know, previously a very logging-specific answer to this or a metrics-specific answer to this or an APM-specific answer to this look at what we were saying and be like, oh, wait, we do that too. Especially if we just you know, buy a logging product over here and kind of build out some APM functionality here. Like that's, we have these three products that can be three pillars and then sold under this umbrella to you for three times what we were charging you before. Success. Yes. It's, I mean, more power to them, right? Like that is an incredibly simple and effective go-to-market approach and certainly not something that Charity and I would have come up with had we thought of it. But it's not really a picture of the future. It's not really a change in how people were using logging products and monitoring products before where you had your monitoring product dashboard that, you know, caused you, the human, to go page it into your page something into your brain and then go look at your logging tool. It's not really a change. It just happens to all be under one commercial entity today. And as a company, we have 
had to keep balancing, I say, principles and pragmatism, right? Where on the fully principled side, if we were fully principled all the time, we would spend all of our efforts talking about observability and how it is different from monitoring and kind of just totally spend all of our efforts and marketing tokens and, and brain space on sort of these concepts underpinning the concepts and philosophy. On the purely pragmatic side, we would be building a monitoring tool and calling it observability and being like, hey, we do this too. And so the, the balance in there is always going to be some part education. Hey, this is how this is different, right? This is observability is about unknown unknowns. It's about shortening these feedback loops. It's about being in a conversation with your code and having developers be comfortable tossing in instrumentation that maps back to their, back to their tests, high cardinality data, all this, balancing that education with let's figure out how to map this concepts back to what you're familiar with. Mm-hmm. If I could go back and tell my 2016 self one thing, it is you and Charity are not thinking it nearly enough, as you should be, about the marketing and sales mm. side of this thing that you want to push forward. I still remember six months into the company, we were trying to bring on a, a designer. I swear, probably wasn't, but I, I think it was the first time we were trying to explain honeycomb and observability to a non-technical person, like someone who hadn't lived it and had all the battle scars to prove it. And... We launched into our pitch and what we were doing, this poor designer just looked so confused. Mm. And we, we, you know, 15 minutes in, we like tried to reset. We we're like, and Charity was like, okay, okay. You know, when you're on call and your pager goes off and this poor designer is just nope. like, nope. I haven't been there. Nope. Help. <laughs> Not at all. Yeah. And figuring out the right words to use to communicate. This is not just a slight evolution of what you've used before. This is not just logging, but better. This is bringing together all these concepts that we as engineers had bucketed separately for reasons and providing a new approach to how should you be grounding yourself in what is actually happening in production? How should you as an engineer be grounding yourself in that? Can I be honest with you about something? Please. So we were on the teams all together around probably somewhat that time frame. And uh, this is 2019. We published that show August 2019, and as you may know from that show and maybe know my background, I'm more on the front end, more on the business side, more different side of tech. You know, I'm still a software developer, but just on a different space of it. And while I've deployed, or I would say built Linux boxes in the cloud, VPS Linux boxes, I've never observed or monitored anything really. So if I'm being honest with you, I could empathize with that designer so much because on that show... I was barely hanging on in terms of like what observability was. <laughs> and only now, like going back and listening to that show as part of one preparation for this show and just kind of going back to catch up where you've been, because that's where we've been too. I'm like, okay, now I get everything Christine had said in this show. But then I was like, what is she talking about? I mean, not fully, but yeah, for the most part, because like, what is the unknown unknowns? What does it mean to be monitoring a system? What do you mean by metrics? And that's not enough. And logging is not enough. Like, I get the basic premises of those things. But like this space you've been forging has very much been like a uphill battle because you're you've coined the term and you're telling the, the market what they need. And, and it is what you've made. And it's a brand new thing. And you've got competitors sort of shifting and saying, OK, well, now this is observably, too. So you sort of have a muddy water almost even to this observability space. So even then, like 2018, I was like, 
I love you, Christine, but I don't know what you're talking about for the most part, like in terms of where you're going. So now I'm getting it. Like hindsight is always 2020 and you can always connect the dots better backwards than forwards. So I can empathize. Yeah. You were, you were not alone. I'll say. And you know, it's something that we, I can say we've gotten a lot better at, but there's still always room to improve. Yeah. Observability has this reputation of being a thing that like, oh, backend people do or SRE. And I'm like, no, anytime you are answering questions, like who's listening to our podcasts? Who is, um, who, oh, this podcast wasn't served, you know, was inaccessible for a couple hours. Like why? Okay, let me go triage that. Like that's, that's something that benefits from observability. That is something that where you're probably, you know, you're trying to answer questions about your system. When we started, there were, a lot of parallels I felt between what we were trying to build and the world of BI, like business intelligence, they're trying to answer these yeah. questions all the time. Why did revenue go down last month? Well, I don't know. Crap. Okay, let's go, let's go dig and let's go try to reduce the search space and let's go try to find what changed. There's a lot of parallels in between BI and observability, but there's just been this historical like huge wall between these communities, between in sharing ideas, in sharing techniques, some of it is real, right? The, the, the data requirements of a BI system are different from the data requirements for someone focused on what's happening right now, right? BI, you can take an hour to get a perfectly accurate result. In our world, I would rather have a mostly accurate result in milliseconds so that I can move on and ask my next question. Mm-hmm. So... BI and observability, kind of strange mirror images of each other that uh, I, I hope will continue to learn, share ideas, and, and inspire each other. But this is your challenge, though. Like you mentioned sales and marketing. And sales and marketing is like telling your story. Marketing is your story, and sales is the result of connecting with the people who understand your story and want to buy because of it. Right? I mean, that's one version of how you could describe sales and marketing. But getting that right, like... Explain what observability isn't enough. Like what it is is not enough. You have to showcase it. And I think it's challenging to showcase it to to your full potential audience that can really get the benefit of it because they don't understand it. We talked on that show in particular, and we'll link it in the show notes for folks to go and listen to it. But Jared had mentioned this rift between dev and ops. And he asked you, you know, would we see more ops come over to the dev side or vice versa. And it was like, well, that's kind of what DevOps has been, this movement of ops to dev. And just this sort of like that chasm alone has, I think, finally unified. We now actually have DevOps. Unfortunately, it's one in terms of a job title. There's a lot of pushback on that front, but hey, it won. So let's just use it. (laughs) But you've got this unified DevOps. And unless you're in that space, you can't understand really even metrics and logging. That's enough for you. But like if you're a designer, you don't care, but you may care if you're like, well, we got this new customer because, you know, of our ability to showcase our solution enough that they now have everyone involved. And that's one thing you said in the announcement, too, is this idea of of observability for everyone. If that's the case, how do you begin to break down those barriers of of the lack of understanding? Like, how do you explain observability differently that doesn't use the buzzwords to get everyone truly involved? I think, well, A, I think without the buzzwords is a... Wonderful aspiration, but there are some words that are used for a reason. You know, we're not going to get fully away from the buzzwords. I do like your use of metrics, by the way. (laughs) That was a good one. Yeah. I like that. It's a popular sticker. When I think about observability for all, it is about 
we've gotten some feedback in the last year or so from devs saying, I like what Honeycomb seems to be about, but the fact that so much of your messaging is targeted around production is kind of scary, right? Like, and as a dev, production is a scary place. Right. So when you keep talking about production, you know, it just, it just makes me not want to find out more. And I'm like, huh, this is totally true. Um, when I think about my, frankly, my early days working with a charity where I was the dev to her ops and I broke stuff and then she came and yelled at me when I broke stuff. Production is scary. Ops people are scary. Observability by association, that must be scary. And I think that there is, uh, <laughs> in my experience, it was true, but it shouldn't have to be. And something I talked about, I think, on our, on our last podcast is that being able to make production feel more like a place where developers should hang out, where developers should be building our understanding of who we're building for and why and, and how users are actually using the product. All of these things should be more accessible and, and friendly to developers. And so there's, you know, part of it is figuring out what language to use to make production feel more native to developers, whether in our marketing or in the product itself. Part of it is going to be integrations with or smoother on-ramps from technologies and worlds that developers are more, more comfortable with. But even today, we're hearing things from some of our customers where they're, they're almost sheepish. They're like, hey, you know, actually our, our customer success people use Honeycomb to answer questions about what our customers are doing. Is that weird? And I, to that, I always just, I, I'm like, awesome. That's not weird. It's <laughs> great. And it's, it's actually, again, very in line with this idea that everyone should share some language or share the same picture of what your users are actually doing in production. Because that's what matters, right? This, this whole, I think this whole DevOps movement, and we're moving online, it is sort of a reorienting around the end user experience. Because end user doesn't care whether dev screwed up or ops screwed up. What they care about is, you know, I, I put this thing in my shopping cart and I can't check out. And that is, having that be the rallying cry, I think is what will galvanize more and more teams, whether different functional teams within a company or different size companies. It's what will allow them to align behind, okay, let's level up our ability to, to see reality mm -hmm. and use data to support that. What's up, friends? This episode is brought to you by Rewatch. Rewatch gives product and engineering teams async superpowers, and it helps them move faster with greater clarity. And I love clarity. Imagine this, all of your team's videos all in one place. Record, organize, and share the videos that your team needs to ship great work. Keep everyone in the loop by sharing team meetings from sprint planning to daily stand-ups to project retros. Empower new hires to get up to speed faster with onboarding and training videos that are easy to watch and, of course, rewatch. You can streamline knowledge sharing by creating a library of product demos, tech talks, architecture reviews, and so much more. And we're using Rewatch here at Changelog, and the killer feature for us is every video is automatically transcribed and searchable. 
and the transcripts are surprisingly very accurate, which makes it so easy for us to search key phrases, terms, and find and play the exact spot in a video. Plus, there's commenting and threaded conversation options on every single video. Now, we have a home for all our videos to enable our growing and distributed team to participate in any conversation asynchronously and on their own time. Check them out. Get started for free with a 14-day trial at rewatch.com. Again, rewatch.com. Strange Loop talk, you mentioned your fascination for superheroes. Hmm. And that talk was observability, superpowers for developers. And I thought that was the coolest ever, basically. And having re-listened to that episode, I was thinking the one thing we didn't ask you in regards to this idea of superhero was if observability was a superhero, what superpower would it have? Oh. I don't think we asked you that. I listened to the whole show. Maybe I missed it, but I have what I think its superpower would be. I'm curious if you can share what you think its superpower might be from your perspective. You did not ask me this question. It's a good one. It would have something to do with sight. The flip answer or something like x-ray vision. But I think that it would be deeper than that. Deeper than just, right, because x-ray vision, you can still see something that you don't understand. So I think it would, the superpower would be something like um, one of the screenshots I'm sure I violate a million licensing agreements to use in that talk is a uh, the scene from Black Panther where Shuri is like holding, like looking at a patient and there's this like holographic view of what's happening inside the patient. I feel like it'd be something like that where you not only can see inside something, but you understand how the pieces work mm. together and like what is broken and what needs to be improved. So uh, a capability plus wisdom, basically. Yeah. That's yeah. interesting. So my, my first thought was x-ray vision and that seems like the easy button. But I do like, I'm a Black Panther fan, so I do know of the scene you're talking about. And I think that's actually a good observation because it kind of reminds me even of Iron Man when he's got those exploded views of his different things and he can spin them in the air and he can look at all the different angles of it and he can shrink it and expand it like you would a pinch and zoom on a phone or something like that. But like just that I think is, and the reason why I asked that question is because you've coined the term. And so there's this terminology in psychology called name entertainment. And so the reason why you name things or just diagnose a certain illness or a thing is so that you can have a name to understand it better. And you've done that. But as you've mentioned, sales and marketing, this idea of storytelling, it's challenging going beyond the word. And so sometimes this sort of mental picture of what it really is beyond the word, people get superheroes, they get superpowers, they understand that, that language and that vision of what it might be. They can see it in their mind's eye. I think that might be helpful for you to explain its superpower, right? Because like now I have a deeper understanding too, having your lens of what the superpower might be for observability. It's true. Uh, you know, back in the day when um, when there were physical conferences and booths at those physical conferences, although I think that there are some starting again, my favorite thing to do when I was at booth would be, right? Because you need at booth, you need your pitch down to like right. five seconds. You got no time with anybody. No yeah. one cares beyond that. And someone would walk up and be like, all right, what does Honeycomb do? And I'd look at them and be like, have you ever looked at a, 
a graph in your monitoring dashboard or wherever and been like, I see this spike. Why? Why is it happening? Like, what's weird about this point? And wanted to dig in, but couldn't. Always I'd get this like, yeah, I've been there. I'm like, we let you do that. We let you always stick your hands in, tease it apart, understand more. I like that that maps actually with this uh, x-ray vision, super like context wisdom, right. superpower question also. Yeah, I think wisdom is, uh, to me, is the ultimate superpower of humanity. Like you don't, you're not born with wisdom. You earn it, right? You get it through the scars. You and Charity have grown in wisdom. You know, you said that you look back six years ago, what'd you do? That time on the couch with this idea that you could be a billion dollar company. Now you have the wisdom and you can see in hindsight all the stones and lily pads and whatnot that got you to where you're at today. Wisdom is earned through life. And, you know, that I think is kind of, you almost give somebody a secret path to wisdom because you kind of give them a way to not have to earn it. The software does it for you. This is true. And I'm making faces for the listeners here who can't see my face. I'm making faces because there are so many lily pads to this point that Charity and I have missed and then had to climb our way back out of the water to learn. Did you know that when we started off, we were like, we're an enterprise sales company, like through and through. We're going to do this. I didn't know that. We were two engineers. What did we know? And it came from a good place, right? Which is we, again, knew that this was a hard problem, knew that this was uh, something that there were real budgets behind. And so we were determined to build something valuable enough to capture those budgets. Great. What we did not realize is everything that that entailed. You know, I still remember some of our quote unquote enterprise engagements in you know, 2017, 2018, where we thought, you know, white glove treatment meant you get to pair with one of our engineers and like whatever problems you have, we will help you solve. And we will just be like, sit here and be ready for you. As it turns out, customers really want to know that you have a plan for them, not just that you will be ready to deal with any problems that they run into. One of the great joys of the last several years of working with really good salespeople is understanding both the art and the science yeah. of something like sales. As a technologist, it's tempting to just look at, again, sales and marketing, A, lump it under one umbrella, which they're not, and B, think of it as all just like art and hand-waving and like people things. And really getting to dig into that and appreciate and understand thinking about a business or even a deal as a system. You have inputs, you have outputs, you have the telemetry or signals that you're looking for there. There are some things you can't model the other human, but there are some things that you can, that has been much more fun than I thought it would be to get to learn and to watch us as a company level up at and still be true to how we want to engage with customers. We still want to be thoughtful and credible and very human in that process, but be able to layer in the sort of structure and sales processes that, you know, 2016 me would have her eyes would have glazed over mm. to hear 2021 me talk about. Does this being your first CEO position scare you still yet? Or are you still sort of like very excited about it? Cause both you can't come in knowing everything, right? You're going to make some mistakes. You're going to go down the wrong roads and turn around and come back and learn. And that's the point, right? You, you can't go through life not failing because you have to learn. And, and a lot of learning comes from failure and not necessarily failure. We, I've said this on the show recently with, uh, Eugenia Pace, CEO of Auth0, and we talked about failure on that show. And uh, failure isn't, it's a stop motion event. If you're still trying, if you're still doing, you haven't failed, right? And failure isn't necessarily a fail if you learn from it. It's a failure if you don't learn from it. Absolutely. 
One of our company values is everything is an experiment because absolutely lots of things are going to fail. The key is to, you know, experiments fail all the time, but you learn from it and then you make the experiment better. I mean, fear and excitement go hand in hand, mm-hmm. I think, especially in this role where especially knowing all the things that we got wrong early on. And despite telling ourselves, oh, we've been in the valley long enough, we refuse to fit the two technical co-founders trope, we will be wiser. We still had to learn every lesson the wrong way. Sorry, the hard way. I think that the the thing that I will take pride in is that we try to learn that lesson as quickly as possible and, and move on to the next thing. Mm-hmm. I wish I could be the sort of person to read all the blog posts and Twitter threads and, you know, advice out there and just synthesize it perfectly and just walk a golden path. That would be wonderful and much less stressful. Would it though be? I don't think it would be. I think it would be less fun. <laughs> I like hard mode. Jared was on a couple of weeks ago. Jared's my business partner here at ChangeLog. And when I'm gone or he's gone, it gets generally harder around here because it's one person versus two people moving a lot of the things. And while he was gone, I happened to turn on hard mode because I did a lot more than I normally do in a week. I don't know why, just because <laughs> I, I actually think I like hard mode better. I mean, obviously, you can burn yourself out, so there's moderation, of course. But I think if the path was easy, would it be fun? No, it wouldn't. And that's why, you know, we go back to that excitement and fear. This is starting to go into, like, therapy territory. But, again, Charity and I have always had these huge chips on our shoulder. And I think for both of us, the biggest motivating factor is proving people wrong. So absolutely, the easy path is not the ideal one, but you can still hope for some like, you know, even if you're on hard mode, you still want to pick up, you still want to dream that of turning a corner and picking up some giant, I'm going to use the terminology wrong, I'm not a gamer, picking up some like great loot box uh, or like something with a magical weapon that just lets you like kick butt, right? Yeah. Like you want to hold out that hope that yeah. someday you will have all of the answers and <laughs> everything will be easy from that point on. I can empathize with that too. So, yeah, maybe a balance between the two. Like, give me hard mode plus easy mode in some cases, you know? I do like hard mode, but not always. If it was always hard mode, you're right. I think it would be t- very tiring. And you would, because uh, your motivation for doing things can't simply be just be spite and frustration and proving people wrong. Like, it it has to go beyond that. Because at some point, it's like uh, like a conceited motion almost, you know? Like, it's really about you than it is about the world. It can be, at least. Not that it is. It can be. If you don't find the rounded reason for doing. No. And this is what, I mean, for me, the, the rounded reason is customers yeah. and the community and hearing the success stories. Let's stop there for a second, because I like what you said before. You said, rather than tell me or the audience your valuation or go there, you said, I ground myself in solved customer problems, essentially. And I think that's a spot on response. I think you should ground your value because that's really what it is, not this number, perceived number that you that it has no real algorithm to endpoint, right? Like it's just magic in some ways in some shape or form. Just because you raise 50 million or 200 million or 150 million or whatever the number is, like does that equate to a multiple that turns into a valuation? No. I think being grounded in in your customer satisfaction and the value you bring to customers, that's a better I'd want to go there than just simply the valuation. Although saying a number is validating, right? To become the unicorn or become a unicorn status company has its own marketing benefits. So in some cases, I think it gets political in some cases, right? Like that's a political kind of stance. Like I have to say a valuation 
so that I can get attention, right? Or perceived attention from people rather than just simply being good enough because of what we do and believe and bring to the market and the team we've built and how we've built it and the scars we've layered on, et cetera. It's true. It's true. When we found out our valuation, um, I, again, I am too cynical about all of this to let it carry much weight for me personally, but sharing it with the team, having them react and feel that validation mm-hmm. of their hard work. Those are the concrete things that matter to me. Yeah. Well, when you get the duffel bag we mentioned earlier in the show, when you get a duffel bag like that with that kind of money in it, you've got to do something with it. We talked about one of the things you're going to do is open up a generous free tier, which I think you may have already done or you're in the process of. So help me break that down. I'd imagine also move fast and keep hiring would be smart or to some degree growth. So would it be, you know, growth in team size? What what does this Series C funding do for you? What are you planning to do with that kind of money? Yeah. As you mentioned, uh, thank you for mentioning the free tier. It is something that we've had in our product, varying levels of difficult to get to since I think 2018, mid-2018. But we've invested very little in making that self-serve experience really delightful. This is something where, you know, being a company that straddles both self-serve and the top-down enterprise sale, it is very tempting. And I will also argue for us, it was somewhat moderately necessary to really figure things out in that high-touch enterprise way, necessary for us to sort of validate that this is an approach that really can own a significant part of the market. But with the gravity of that exerts on attention and people and, and bandwidth, it meant that since we introduced the free tier in 2018, it has never been anyone's kind of first job to make sure that free users have a really great kind of onboarding experience, that someone, you know, tinkering around on their own at 2 a.m. can access training and, and observability 101 content in an easy way. Sure, we put stuff out on our on our blog and we put we do talks that you can watch on YouTube, but a thing that I'm really excited about is now taking the, the great work that our solutions architects and customer success folks have done to onboard and support a larger customer, taking that work and using that to inspire someone, you know, that individual developer at 2am. I want Honeycomb to be something that people eventually pull into their burgeoning software project as naturally as they do a testing suite or CI and I know that our product today has some work to get there. So this is, you know, when we say observability for all, it's really saying we've figured out some pieces that work in this concentrated way, and we want to spread it to everyone, no matter how they come to us, no matter how they want to learn. We want there to be resources, a great product experience, and um, support for them. Mm. Does that answer your question, or was that was that like high-minded, touchy-feely stuff that doesn't? Isn't concrete enough. Oh, it's concrete. It's. Uh, I get a little carried away um, about this. This is something that's been a long time coming. Yeah, I'm sure you've been preparing quite a bit. I mean, no doubt. And uh, I guess the one thing I think about with free tiers is there's sometimes, or at least a growing trend, to obviously have one. But then when you do, they're not really that free, or they're restrictive and stuff like that. And so it makes sense for you to to talk about you know how long it's been in place, but how it's not really been anybody's job to leverage. And I think that's the key part is like one, make it useful if you're going to use it, not just like make it free to get them in the door to 
somehow hook them elsewhere or whatever, not that you're doing that, but like that's what free tiers often are. And uh, the conversation I had a while back was with Spencer Kimball from CockroachDB talking about their free tier. And I really appreciate the idea that that they put a lot of work, like you're putting a lot of work into and attention into your free tier to make it useful, to make it like you can actually do something with it. You can build a lightweight startup for the most part on a free tier. I think that's smart because it brings the right kind of people in the door with the right kind of motivations and you give them enough to get as far as they can. And once they really see that value, then your sales team can come in place and say, here's a larger spectrum. Here's more opportunity. Here's more availability to our team and our, our tool set. That's super smart because it's like open source. It's like adoption. Adoption is like oxygen, right? You, you can't absolutely become a leader in the marketplace unless you get adopted. And if you don't have adoption, you don't have oxygen, you can't breathe anymore. You're, you're toast. I'm quite proud today of the potential usefulness of our free tier, just in that, you know, unlimited seats, basically you're, you're, you're capped at the rate at which you want to send data to us, but you get 60 days of retention. What I think it's missing is that cognitive like lift of like, how is this really different? Or how do I get started? Or where do I begin? These are the things that mm-hmm. could just make it even better, right? You shouldn't have to figure it out on your own. You should be able to, you should have all these resources and things to draw from. I'll be honest also, and, and you know, maybe moderate apologies to the investors listening to this podcast. My priority with the free tier is not to feed the sales funnel. We know from a fact that we have a number of folks on the free tier who are finding it super valuable and are just small projects that are going to stay small. To me, that's great. That means that they, as a small project, are still entering that conversation with their code through observability, like I talked about. They're still bringing production in closer to their development process. They're still benefiting from, from being able to answer these unknown unknowns in, you know, who's actually using my software and how are they using it and where are they, you know, what are they struggling with? So it's, you know, if anything, this, this recent funding gives us a little bit of time to really make sure to do the counterintuitive thing, right? When building a big business, investing in the free tier is not directly, is, it is rare that investing in the free tier right. feeds well into that, that mystical algorithm evaluation, but it's something that we are, feel a ton of conviction around being key to, you know, observability as a whole, continuing to be healthy and growing and Honeycomb specifically. Yeah. I, I think the free tier is wise in a wise move, if not to convert free tier users, but to enable them to storytell about you and your brand so that you can capture the value elsewhere. Because you're right, not always a free tier user is the one that should upgrade or could. I think similar to GitHub, right? GitHub has a massive free tier called open source, essentially, right? Like it's a much different animal, much different valuation, much different size of business and potentially even market cap. But, you know, when you shrink or or reduce or when you shrink or expand the, the problem set, essentially, how can you leverage this free tier to one, give value to the world and understand observability more? Because that's your biggest problem, or at least one of the biggest problems you've been solving for is like, how can we enable more people to truly understand what observability is and the superpower it gives them when they have it, this x-ray wisdom vision? Because once they understand that, they can tell your story better and you can capture that value elsewhere. I think if you can find ways to correlate what this feature does for that bottom line and how you capture value elsewhere, then it's a no-brainer. Yeah, this is a real shout out also to my head of sales who stereotypical 
persona of a sales leader, they don't want a free tier. They want to be able to capture it. They want, or the purpose of the free tiers to capture revenue. And the sales leader since day one has been all about free tiers for hearts and minds. Mm-hmm. Let's go get those hearts and minds. I agree with that. Uh, and the revenue will come. And that has really been sort of a, a rallying cry for our whole good market org. I mean, too, I vaguely remember all the details of this conversation. I can't remember his name for the very moment we're talking here. Founder of, of Sneak. He was on Founders Talk. Guy Pajarni. And he talked about their free tier. Okay, great. We're going to give it out for free, but how can we make it so that we get a feedback loop? Because it doesn't have to just to be a one-way street, right? Like if Honeycomb gives a free tier, it doesn't mean, okay, the, we can't ask any questions. We can't get any value back. He said it has to be, I'm paraphrasing from memory, but essentially it's a dance. Like, okay, we're going to give out this free tier to enable market adoption and awareness and usefulness for the community and the world. But at some point, we have to get some value back. And what is that value? And I think it's determining what that value is. One, it could be capturing it elsewhere in other lanes where the value is captured, a different enterprise. So that free user who works somewhere brings their enterprise along with them in a whole different account for a whole different purpose. Or this well-sought-after feedback loop. What did you expect? Why was that broken to you? Why didn't you do it this way? How are we useful to you this quarter or this week or with this problem set? Like give us that feedback and almost it spawns a relationship. I think in many ways, that's what the sales process enables is this relationship. And that's what you desire as a company with your employees and your customers is this relationship. I think the more you invest in it in those ways, the more value at large it will bring, whether it's paying customers or not, you're going to learn a lot about what you're doing and how it's useful And you're going to have a ready, willing participant because they're getting for free and they're getting use out of it. And if they're active, then they're going to be giving you feedback or hopefully. I love that your first question, example question was, what did you expect? Because that's the most interesting piece, right? Not why didn't you take this action or why did you take that action? It's did what we tried to put on the outside of the package match what you found on the inside? Right. And understanding that difference. Expectations versus reality is so, I mean, there's a theme, right? It's useful in product feedback. It's useful in, um, in, in a way, observability is trying to help users reconcile the expectations of what their software is doing with the reality of what their software is doing. It's the industry recognizing engineers cannot hold mental models, accurate mental models of what their code is doing anymore. You've got to ground it in reality. And that's, that's a lot of what building a start- startup is all about as well. Mm-hmm. This feedback loop, I hate to keep referencing other shows on this podcast, but when I talked to Eugenia Pace from Aussie, as I mentioned before, he talked about this idea that complaints and rejections from customers, essentially this feedback loop was, was little gifts wrapped in a nasty envelope. (laughs) And the way he described it was like, you know, instead of saying, you know, pompously like, Oh, you didn't like my product. Why not? You didn't like this. Come on. Really? I'm the best. We're the best. We're trying so hard, et cetera, et cetera. Instead it was, Really, tell me more. What did you not what did you not get? What did you expect? What did you expect differently? You know, what did you want from this? What was, you know, how could this have been differently? Rather than just simply saying, Oh, this is nasty feedback, don't open that email. It was like, no, let me open this email and ask more questions. And so I learned that lesson from him. It was this this idea that this feedback loop is a gift wrapped in a nasty envelope. I like that. Yeah, I find uh, I still have a um an automated email that goes out to people who sign up for Honeycomb and, and hit a certain point, asking them for feedback. And I find myself taking so much more time and thought 
on the constructive responses than the like, oh, this is great, right? I'm like, awesome. What was confusing? Tell me more. I love it. And being on this side of it really makes me appreciate um, people who take the time to write in thoughtful feedback. And I very much look forward to being able to take that gratitude you know, I, I want to be great users of the, the SaaS products I use now going forward. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Fire Hydrant. Fire Hydrant is the reliability platform for every developer. Incidents impact everyone, not just SREs. Fire Hydrant gives teams the tools to maintain service catalogs, respond to incidents, communicate through status pages, and learn with retrospectives. What would normally be manual, error-prone tasks across the entire spectrum of responding to an incident, this can all be automated in every way with Fire Hydrant. Fire Hydrant gives you incident tooling to manage incidents of any type with any severity with consistency. You can declare and mitigate incidents all inside Slack. Service catalogs allow service owners to improve operational maturity and document all your deploys in your service catalog. Incident analytics like extract meaningful insights about your reliability over any facet of your incident or the people who respond to them. And at the heart of it all, incident run books, they let you create custom automation rules to convert manual tasks into automated, reliable, repeatable sequences that run when you want. Create Slack channels, Jira tickets, Zoom bridges instantly after declaring an incident. Now your processes can be consistent and automatic. Try Fire Hydrant free for 14 days. Get access to every feature, no credit card required. Get started at firehydrant.io. Again, firehydrant.io. And by our friends at Gitpod. Gitpod lets you spin up fresh, ephemeral dev environments in the cloud in seconds. And I'm here with Johannes Landgraf, co-founder of Gitpod. Johannes, you recently opened up your free tier to every developer with a GitLab, GitHub, or Bitbucket account. What are your goals with that? Thanks, Adam. As you know, everything we do at Gitpod centers around eliminating friction from the workflow of developers. We work towards a future where ephemeral, cloud-based development environments are the standard in modern engineering teams. Just think about it. It is 2021 and we use automation everywhere. We automate infrastructure, CI/CD build pipelines, and even writing code. The only thing we have not automated are developer environments. They are still brittle, tight to local machines and a constant source of friction during onboarding and ongoing development. With Gitpod, this stops. Our free plan gives devs access to cloud-based developer environments for 50 hours per month. Companies such as Google, Facebook, and most recently GitHub have internally built solutions and moved software development to the cloud. I know I'm biased, but I can fully relate. Once you experience the productivity boost and peace of mind that automation offers, you never want to go back. Very cool. All right, if this gets you excited, learn more and get started for free at gitpod.io. Again, gitpod.io. Coming back to this time frame, you fundraised before. Was this funding round, as we said before, hard mode or easy mode for you? Funding can often take your focus as a CEO away from essentially the core idea, the whole point of being there. So was this a a hard mode distraction or was it an easy mode? Yep. Because, I mean, we mentioned before your previous Series B investors 
came along for the Series C. Plus, you got Insight Partners leading this round here. Hard mode or easy mode? This one was an easy mode one. And I apologize to listeners again for sounding like I'm a little bit of bragging there. I will also say this is the this was probably the first easy mode fundraising that we've ever done. I think that the level of conversation around observability in the market is really something that created the conditions for this to be an easier, easier time. And we were doing well enough as a company to not be, you know, charging towards a zero cash date in our fundraising as well. So this was a long, long road to get here, but I am yeah. grateful that this was a lighter weight round to put together. What does it do to you personally, this process? Like, how does your life change? Do you have later nights? Do you, does your diet change? Does your self-care change? <laughs> like, what does it personally do to you as CEO? An artifact of this round being entering this round in a more, more position of strength meant that we could do things like dictate the time or like put constraints on the timeline. So raising this round, we were able to, to constrain it to really only three weeks, three or four weeks of uncertainty before we you know, signed something and moved on. And I will say that in those three or four weeks, my brain was just completely fragmented. Like I was capable of responding to things and charging forward and kind of executing on what needed to be done. But I basically apologize retroactively to everyone in my life who was not part of the fundraising process or not like relevant, tangential to it, because every sort of free moment my brain got, it was seeing if I got an email or if I could, you know, go back and tweak something with the deck or incorporate this piece of feedback I got. I will say that personally and physically, my COVID has helped me establish a lot more kind of healthy habits working from home, which has been a, a surprise silver lining and, you know, in a pandemic. And I think all of that was necessary and helped even in this fragmented fundraising period, making sure that I was walking the dogs and thus getting my exercise and eating relatively healthily. You know, it's easy and it is sometimes still glamorized to skip those things in the founder world. And I've, I am glad to be at the phase of my life where I recognize maintaining this meat machine of mine is a, a necessary yeah. part in the, my brain working well. Yeah. Maybe going one layer deeper. What about any habits that you have in particular that you use to say, keep your mind, your mindset straight or say no to the right things and yes to the right things? Like what are some of the things that you've created that are habits or routines that are specific to you that, that are like, you know what, if I didn't have this habit or routine, this would slip, that would slip. A few things. This is something that started several years ago. I am not a naturally introspective person. My default is just what needs to get done, charge forward, do it. Okay, next, let's do it. And in those, you know, dark days of 2017 through 2019, really, I had heard from many sources that journaling, well, I heard journaling and meditation were good. Um, and I still can't meditate. But what I started doing then is telling myself, hey, look, I don't need a quote unquote journaling habit, but anyone can take five minutes on their phone, at their computer, whatever, five minutes each day to check in and be like, what am I feeling that I would otherwise ignore? Mm. What's that like thing that doesn't feel quite right? Or what pissed me off today that I could fix and could get better going forward? And introducing that habit, and I still don't do it every day, right? I think at peak, 
I look at this at the end at the end of every year. At peak, I think of like the 365 days in a year, I maybe had like 200 days where I spent at least five minutes writing something. But I think that that helped ground me during the roller coaster. Like it helps ground you during roller coaster days to just have a moment where you you reflect. That's one. Uh, number two is I, I I literally don't know how people live without like to do apps. I joke all the time that my brain is a sieve and if I don't get write it down, it just doesn't happen. And so anytime I'm, you know, in a one-on-one or something and someone says something that I can't deal with right now, it like goes into my to-do app to do app to get triage later. Yeah. Um, it's there's a world where I'm freed of this and I could just get, get to go be a goat farmer or something somewhere where I'm sure I'd have a different kind of to-do list. But that is a thing. I can't remember what the third thing I was gonna say was, but it's so much more of this founder journey has been has involved these like introspection people relationships management skills that i did not have when i started and it has been Mm -hmm. it's been a journey (laughs) what about admitting to yourself i have no idea what i'm doing this is something you wrote to me as part of the process of doing these these calls i ask a couple questions and I love it because I get some really thoughtful responses pretty much from everybody. So I'm, they've been great primers for me to not so much directly ask questions from, but sometimes I bring specific stuff like this where it's like, I asked you what lessons have you learned that you can share? And you, and you said the only way I'm able to learn fast enough to keep up with what Honeycomb's needed from me is by approaching the crushing weight of, in quotes, I have no idea what I'm doing with golden retriever energy of, quote, but it'll be fun to find out. You know, like, how do you, how do you execute on that? How do you execute on like just showing up and saying, you know what? I have no idea what I'm doing. I almost feel like that's a humble necessity. Yeah. Right. To be in your position. I think so. As again, an an engineer who was, you know, Charity was CEO for the first three years of Honeycomb and then we switched and, you know, I came into this role. One of my investors immediately after the change sat me down and was like, I'm going to give you a mini MBA in three hours and just fill your head with all the SaaS metrics that you should be paying attention to. And I was just like, oh my God, I have no idea what you're saying, but I better take good notes so I can digest this later. How do I do it? I don't know. It's accepting that you, you're you never going to know everything. For me, I know that my approach is trying and seeking out as much information as I can. And like I like form this like mental map of like, okay, here are these concepts. This is how they tie together. Here's this like giant question mark floating over here on the left. Let me go find someone who can help me fill that in, at least with like a high level sketch. I think for me, this is the the, the hard mode piece, right? This is the part that is is fun and challenging, and it is learning, figuring out how to learn as quickly as as possible to make sure that I am ahead of where the company needs me to be. And I am only human. There may come a point when I am no longer able to keep up, but that's the delight. Mm -hmm. And I am grateful to everyone whom I've ever talked to who has helped me fill in a little bit of that mental map and given me the ability to appreciate, you know, oh man, like this marketing model and how someone who's really great in this role thinks about how to break down where leads are coming from next month and how to balance sales process with the art of, of establishing a relationship with your customer and there are so many things that, especially as a, a young engineer, I sort of turned my nose up at and sniffed at, at as being touchy-feely. And like, there's so much brain energy that that younger me um, mm-hmm. was a snob at. 
So if anything, right now I am just trying to rectify all of that as quickly as I can. That's good. Change is good. Change is good. <laughs> I like, because uh, you said you're not naturally an introspective person. I think it's, to be in your position, I think you you have to learn. And it's a skill, I believe. I believe it's a skill where you do it and you practice it and you learn and you get better at it. I don't think anyone's naturally introspective because there's skeletons in those closets. You know what I mean? Like it's it can be challenging to introspect about yourself. There's a book I read in the beginning of, I think, 2018 or 2019 called Insight by Tasha Yurik. And I remember it was, it's about a book about self-awareness. And I really enjoyed the book. And after I read the book, I looked at the reviews because that's what I do. And one of the, the top reviews was like, oh, this book is terrible. It doesn't touch on the philosophy of self-awareness at all. There's no psychology in this. It's just checklists and tactics on how to improve your self-awareness. I'm like, ah, that's why that's I liked why it. I liked it, yeah. Yeah, this book, you know, it, it is absolutely a skill. And it's so many of these things that feel like, oh, I'm just not a per- I'm just not like that as a person. Like you can find small ways, like the five-minute journaling each night, right? Like, mm-hmm. You can find small ways to get there. And before that reading that book, a friend had sent me like a feelings chart. Have you seen these? They're like these grids that help you pick a word to identify what you're feeling. And when my friend sent it to me, I was like, this is the most woo thing I've ever seen. Like, you're, I like you, friend, but I'm going to take this and like <laughs> carefully put it in the trash can. And after I read this book and started journaling to figure out what, what was going on in the back of my head, I like emailed her back and I was like, can you send that chart to me again? Because I think it will be useful paired with this, yeah. this thing I want to start doing. It's like the Seinfeld chart. I think that's even what GitHub's... Uh, graph is kind of modeled after on everybody's profile was like, you know, how often can I show up every day? I think there's something in that when you show up every day on a feelings chart and say, okay, today I feel sad, today I feel gratitude, whatever. And you, and you plot that across a map. It's almost like, get this, Christine, observability for yourself. Oh man. Right. Oh man. Yeah. Cause now you're, you're, you're reaching into your own personal unknown unknowns. And you're kind of getting that necessary sort of like, where am I at? And if if you look at your peaks, it's like, okay, why? And on this day that I can I pinch and zoom into that that peak and find out why I felt happy that day. And journaling is the response to that to some degree, because you can I've done that myself even like I've I'm not a religious journaler, but I have enough in the past where I've got significant value. I like read back something like old me thought. And like, I can't even imagine where that old me was, but they felt that way. That day when I read it years later, didn't feel that way, but I was immersed in that feeling again because old me felt that today me can feel it too. And it took me back to that place where I can be like, wow, okay, cool. I can get there again. This is possible. It's like old you giving new you hope. I like that. You get that hope from old you. Yeah. You know, there's that thing of um, if you're not, Constantly looking back at how dumb past you was, mm-hmm. you're not growing. It's really embarrassing to look back at some of the you know angsty things. Yeah, for me always. But you're right; it's evidence of growth. Yeah, and moving along. Where to from here? What's the biggest ambition you have for Honeycomb? What's the the biggest next step you can take? Are you going to take? Those are those are different questions because the next step is is different from from where we want to end up. But I'll try to answer it. For me, next, for Honeycomb Next, we really want to be thoughtful about how to move even closer to developers than we have been before. 
my observability superpowers for developers talk was just the beginning of like, hey, we should be talking about this. We should be showing people how this can be useful in the development process. But observability does not exist in a vacuum. It is part of people's workflows. Engineers touch so many different tools and there are so many tools of the trade these days. So we are absolutely eyeing what does it look like to what would an IDE integration look like? What would something in the that period when a developer is thinking about um, where to make a change, what does that look like? There is a longstanding joke, for me at least, is that the right answer is usually somewhere between me and Charity, especially with her as the ops person, me as the dev person. We started very close to her and really moving, recognizing that as the DevOps definition changes as more developers are embracing software ownership. What does it look like to dramatically pull our you know, our focus product-wise more towards the developer? I think that's exciting. But when I, we say observability for all, I man, I don't want to be constrained to all engineers either. Part of our formative exposure to the precursor to, to Honeycomb was for me in a support role, like Engineers at Parse would each do a day of support occasionally, and so everyone was put in this position of having to figure out, okay, well, this person is, this user is frustrated, let me go figure out what they're actually experiencing, let me map that to reality, and hell yeah, I want more sort of eng-adjacent roles like support or product or everyone who needs to share the centralized picture of reality should be sharing it in one tool or tools that talk to each other or tools that share concepts and languages. What we have today is just the tip of the iceberg of aligning, again, expectations and reality Mm -hmm. of what your users are experiencing. It's like if you've got skin in the game, essentially, like if you're, as you said, end adjacent, if you've got skin in the game and, you know, your bonus or your take home or your whatever is relying upon customer satisfaction because that's what a product does in production is provide customer satisfaction. Then you've got to find out how you matter to them and how you can bring the superpowers of observability to them one way, shape or form. Right. For sure. I mean, all of our salespeople use our dog food instance to answer questions about their customers. Like there's, it's the problem that we are solving is not one that is isolated to engineering is just Mm -hmm. where we land. Are you involved in sales at all? Do you, personally get in touch with customers or you you on the high end ones or you how do you map to to that side it all depends uh it depends on the type of deal it depends on where they're at i do very much like to be able to get to know our customers before the deal, deal closes and there are at this point there are a lot of a lot of that process is something that our account execs work with the customer to to put together so usually i'm brought in at the end i get to meet our champion's boss or the kind of my executive counterpart. And yeah, you know, I still love it. I still love just hearing what they're trying to do and what Honeycomb will let them, will let them do in their world. Observability for all. I like it. I like the sound of it. I like the sound of it. I can't wait to see what happens when you begin to execute on the, this next big phase for you. I'm really, uh, really excited for it. And I, as I said at the beginning of the show, I'm such a fan. I really somewhat even nervous coming into this call because I I just, I'm such a fan, really I am, of you and Charity and what you've been able to do. From the sidelines, whether I've been directly cheering or not, I've been really excited about what you've been doing and uh, I'm just thrilled that this Series C happened for you. I'm even more thrilled to hear in this call that it was more easy mode than hard mode 
for market circumstances. And I think that you're definitely a leader in this space. And uh, yeah, I'm excited. Thank you for that. I too was a little nervous coming into this. So <laughs> thank you for us finally being able to make this happen. Yeah, Honeycomb is so much of, has shaped so much of how Hon- uh, Charity and I look at startups and look at how technology can really change not just the you know tool choice of an industry, but processes and culture and conversation and and thinking about how how to build or or structure teams and on call rotations and yeah. for us this has never been just about the tech. Something I've been able to say a lot more often, and I'll say it here too, just because what you just said is pretty similar. We say that we came for the tech, but we stayed for the humans, because that's the truth. You know, back in the day when we first started, it was like, okay, open source is moving fast. How do we keep up? And for a while, that was our tagline, open source moves fast, keep up. And, uh, you know, we started to look at the changes between versions of open source software, et cetera, et cetera. And we came for the tech. But the reason why it was interesting to stay and, and more interesting to me as a person and what I value in life is the people behind everything. The connection was not the tech. It was a means to an end. The people is what really mattered. And so we show up every day because of people like you fighting in the marketplace to solve real problems and not backing down when somebody tells you no. So I really appreciate that perspective from you and that stands from you and charity and the rest of the bees. You know, I'm, I'm really excited about what you're doing. I really am. I'm uh, full of hope because of people like you. So thank you. Thank you. What's on the horizon that not many people know about? World domination. World domination. I think that we will have succeeded as a company, founding team, everything, if people think about and work with production in a different way. If they're not throwing code over a wall. You know, if engineers spend half their time in their IDs and half their time observing how it's behaving in, in the wild. That is not something that can be measured by revenue or even market share. It's something that is and should be felt by engineers, even if they're not using our product. And so whether that means affecting changes in other products or ideally, I'd like to be the, the best and de facto tool for that. But for us, I think that's that's the end goal, having a lasting change on, on this essential piece of building and shipping software. Well said. It's been awesome having you, Christine. Thank you. It's wonderful being here. Have an excellent rest of your week. You as well. You as well. All right, that's it for this episode. Thank you for tuning in. Yes, I love it when you listen to this show. Thank you so much for tuning in. Do me a favor. If you love this show, if you loved Christine's story and what they're doing at Honeycomb, please share this show with a friend. That's the best way to help us, honestly. We have Plus Plus out there. It's our membership. We'd love for you to join that if you would get value from it. But honestly, the best value for us is just to share our shows with your friends. Big thank you again to Christine for sharing her time on this show and her wisdom. And of course, big thanks to our friends at Fastly for being our bandwidth partner. Check them out at Fastly.com. And also Brake Master Cylinder. Big thanks. Those beats are awesome because Brake Master Cylinder works so hard to make sure we sound good. And we thank you, Brake Master. Thank you. Thank you. 
And of course, last but not least, thank you to you for listening to the show. I so appreciate you listening to the show. Thank you so much for sharing your time with us. If you haven't yet, subscribe to the show at founderstalk.fm. That's it for this week. Thanks again for tuning in. I'll see you again soon.